and I'm Javor, and today we'll talk with Don van Ravensweij. He just arrived from Australia to be the new Stats 1 lecturer. We're going to talk about him, his research, and his interest in Magic the Gathering. Stay tuned! to introduce yourself. Yes. Well, so my name is Don, Don van Ravenswey. I started here at the University of Groningen in August as a assistant professor or UD. The university I worked at before this one is the University of Newcastle in Australia. So what are your research interests? Um, I have two main bodies of research, I would say. One is uh, response time modeling part of cognitive modeling in general. I like research in which you go a little bit deeper than just looking at behavioral data and running a simple t-test. And the other one is loosely defined as conquest for transparency in science. Mm -hmm. uh, this has to do with all kinds of stuff like uh, doing proper replications, data pre-registration, uh, Bayesian statistics, that sort of thing. Okay, cool. So how did you like Newcastle? So I, I did my PhD in the Netherlands and then I moved uh, to Sydney actually for a postdoc. And a big motivation for me for doing so is that I really hate the Dutch climate. I really do. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> that's quite different in Australia. So uh, that's very nice. Um, it's a very nice country to live in. I also found that, um, well, well, as the stereotype says, they're just much more laid back, which I really enjoy. Having said so, I have all my family and friends here, so ultimately I did end up missing them as well. So could you tell us more about your research interests? So I did my PhD on response time modeling about 10 years ago, I think. And then it was uh, my first project. projects were very much empirical. To give an example, I did a, did a study on the effects of alcohol on, on cognitive performance. Uh, this was actually a really fun study. <laughs> so we, uh, we, got, we got participants in the lab, then we got them drunk. Um, but the trick is to make sure that they're not aware that they're drunk or they're not sure if they're drunk or not. So they were, there, it was a within-subjects design, and they came back on three separate days, and we had a placebo condition, a moderate condition. Moderate, that's like 0.5 like blood alcohol content, which is mm -hmm. the threshold for drunken driving, and then uh, one which is twice that limit, which is quite a lot, actually. Yeah. Uh, I piloted on myself, so I remember quite well. How it <laughs> anyway, um, the trick is to make sure that even with this, this large quantity of alcohol, participants are not aware that they're uh, getting that kind of alcohol. And the trick was to, to we grab these large McDonald's milkshake cups and we put in there like this, this like 80% multivitamin juice and then a few drops of mint oil and then uh, the prerequisite amount of vodka necessary for someone's body weight. But the trick is, because you add all these things together, it's kind of like brushing your teeth and drinking orange juice at the same time. Oh. It's really quite gross. And, but it has the advantage of both masking the flavor and the scent of the alcohol, which is great. So we had people in there who said, oh, I'm really drunk. And later it turned out they were in the placebo condition. <laughs> so that's kind of cool. Anyway, um, the point of this is that we... We know, right, that alcohol effect negatively affects performance, but how exactly it affects the brain and how it affects the motoric aspects of performance is, is difficult to tease apart in a traditional sense. But 
by applying something like the, the, the diffusion model, which is a cognitive process model for analyzing response time data, you can sort of tease apart the deterioration in cognitive processes, which is captured by the drift rate parameter, and the deterioration due to motor components, which is the non-decision time component of the model. And it's kind of cool because we found that um, for the lower dose already, there was quite a decrement in cognitive processes, and the motor component deteriorated at a somewhat later point. Which uh, we thought at the time was a very nice way of disentangling these two processes. And I think for me, it, it marked the start of how much deeper can we go into the data and sort of figure out not just what we see in the data, but what's, what's driving, what's, what's causing this, this data pattern to emerge. I've always been very interested in that because uh, I find that, that a lot of studies out there sometimes don't go quite as deep as I think they could go. And I think a large part of the reason for this is that um, researchers are not always familiar with the, uh, the clever tools that are out there for, for digging a little bit deeper. So um, that's, that's a lot of talk about one of my first studies. Um, but then later, as my PhD went further and further, I got more involved in more technical aspects of, uh, of response time modeling, so trying to do model development extending these models. One of the weaknesses of, of models like uh, the diffusion model is that they treat every single decision trial in isolation. So they assume that every trial is independent of one another, which, which is not what we actually see. We see that if people tend to be correct, they speed up a little bit every time, every time. Until they make a mistake and then they slow right down again and that sort of thing. So there is lots of sequential effects in these, in these uh, data that that these models tend to not capture. Partly that's because a model is supposed to be a simplification of the real world, but it's also partly because uh, fitting these models to data was 20 years ago quite um, a computational burden, but these days we can do lots more with our computers. So and that also means that we should uh, modify our models accordingly. So I've done quite a bit. When it comes to that, Newcastle was... Uh, one of the of the the top three universities in the world for doing that stuff because uh, two people work there Scott Brown and Andrew Heathcott and Andrew Heathcott at the time he left there now but um, who developed the LBA which is another cognitive process model for response times and uh, yeah I learned heaps from them now the other pillar the let's just call it Bayesian statistics so. I did my PhD with Erik-Jan Wagemakers in Amsterdam, and right now I dare say he's one of the three foremost people in the world on Bayesian statistics. But when I started my PhD, we uh, both learned Wimbox together. We had this little reading group in our lab, and we would just do Wimbox exercises from, uh, from Michael Lee, who's a full professor at the University of Irvine and because uh, he knew what he was doing already. And right now, he, him and EJ wrote this big book on Bayesian statistics, but at the time, EJ was a student of Michael. And that was, that's, for me, pretty funny. It's a bit of inside knowledge. Um, and initially, it was just meant for me to be on the side, but immediately after my PhD, I sort of rolled into um, the Staple Committee, so it was at the time where the whole Dietrich Stapel fraud case uh, surfaced. And um, they needed someone to do the actual statistical work for, uh, for analyzing all his papers in Amsterdam. And, uh, and I was really interested in this because it seemed, very, uh, it seemed like a way to, to use science in like a, 
like a way that mattered or something. I don't know. I was, I was, I, I came out of my PhD not really sure if, if all of it really had a purpose, and um, and I thought this was great, right? Because I mean, I've learned all these these methodological and statistical things, and now I get to use them on something concrete. And also, it, it was completely uncharted territory. I mean, how do you quantify if if I mean you can you can you can assign a number to how likely it is that certain data patterns emerge but then how do you translate that into a decision as to whether or not this paper should be retracted it's very difficult stuff I, I still find that fascinating that I think more so than anything before that fired up my interest in well the other thing which is transparency in science and proper replications and data registration making sure your sampling plan is, is clear and put put up there from the outset if, if you'd ask me, I think the, the way science should work is we start submitting a manuscript with just an introduction and method section of what we want to be doing, and then it goes over peer review, etc., etc. And only once that, that proposal manuscript gets accepted, only then do we start actually collecting the data. That's how I think it should go. Of course, it, this takes a lot of time and resources and slows the whole process down. But, I mean, ultimately... Why would you think that would be a better approach than how it's working right now? Um, because then you don't get stuff like, so you, you collect all your data, you do your experiment, you do your analyses, and then, I've seen this so many times, you get a review that says, well, but you should really have done blah, 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 and that's something you should have done before collecting all the data. And that seems like such a waste of resources, right? Whereas if you can get that that out in the open straight away, then you can make sure that, that both skeptics and proponents of a certain research proposal agree a priori on how this research is to be conducted. And then you don't get these meaningless discussions after the fact about what could have also caused the data because everyone in advance decides that this is how the experiment should be run. And then, yeah, I mean, there's a lot less room to wiggle. Part, part of why that is my perspective is that a lot of the work I've done has been questioning research findings that, that others have put up there in the first place. And I've done replications or, or slight twists or alternative explanations. And that invariably leads to uh, the paper being sent out for review to the original researchers who always have something, something to say, sometimes like meaningful things, but also sometimes just clearly strongman mm -hmm. because, I mean, people's work is at stake, right? And some of these strongmen can just be prevented if parties agree on the outset how the how the experiment should look like what the experiment should look like sounds like a good idea but also maybe we can um, talk a little bit about the replication crisis in general what is it uh, so <laughs> would you elaborate what the replication crisis in science is a big problem is that a lot of the research findings that are reported in psychology are very likely there as a result of the uh, publication pressure. So the way the academic system is, has been set up for years is that you basically need your p-value to be below 0.05 before you get your paper accepted. The result of which is that um, people both consciously, as some of the, the famous fraud cases that I won't actually put names to, and, uh, and, and but also unconsciously have tweaked their results to to meet this criterion. So things you could think about is um, doing an analysis on your data, um, seeing that um, 
there is that it's like p is 0.055 and then oh but this data looks so much out of the ordinary and he did look a little funny when he walked into the lab it's probably safe to get this one out and then all of a sudden your p dips below or you run your analysis and your p-value is 0.07 and you feel like oh that's almost significant we should probably run a few more participants we just didn't have enough power to detect the effect but it's probably there um, all of these things um, in fact uh, some colleagues of mine have run a study and asking like have you ever done one or the other of these things and it turns out that the two-thirds of academics actually have done some of these things at some point in their career a lot of them not realizing that that is not okay like the idea to test a few more participants, for instance, a lot of academics are not aware that that is not something you do or can do, at, at least not while still interpreting your p-value in the same way as you did before. Anyway, the result of this is that um, a lot of results get published that are just below the 0.05 p-value mark. And uh, you can actually examine this, right? Some researchers have done this uh, by means of uh, what's called a funnel plot. Then you can sort of examine the distribution of all p-values published and then you see the sharp peak just below the 0.05 mark and it's very compelling if you see it because I mean, that just tells you that regardless of whether it's conscious or unconscious something off is happening there now why the replication crisis um, the natural consequence of this is that as soon as some of the more spectacular findings uh, reach the limelight and by spectacular I mean things that sound like they are unlikely to actually be true um, some people were like well I mean if this is a real finding then surely we should be able to replicate it right and a lot of these findings actually turned out to be non-replicable it sounds like a lot of the problems that you were talking about in the replication crisis of science have to do with academics not understanding frequency statistics the way they should yes I think so. And, 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 and part of, of the reason why I think that pre-registering your, your sampling plan and analysis is so important is that it corrects for that. If you have to specify in advance, I'm going to test 80 participants, but you also specify uh, this is what constitutes an outlier. I think that's a, that's a big part of the solution. Even if you don't know it's wrong, at least you now, you now know very well when you're doing something different from what you set out that you were going to do. So that should solve a big part of the problem, I think. Because the last uh, Bayesian statistics professor that we had here, Richard Murray, he was um, he also did a lot of research about um, academics not understanding what frequency statistics are actually about or what they're actually doing in their research. And his um, approach to the problem was that we should teach Bayesian statistics because it, it is easier to understand and it actually answers a lot of questions that people try to answer the frequency statistics but they kind of can't yes. so what's your stance on that because you are so basing statistics professor. yes um, I know Rich quite well I think the uh, the first thing I should say is that Rich has quite an extreme view um, I am a bit more moderate than him I, I do mostly agree with the fact that Bayesian statistics is a lot more intuitive than than frequency statistics I think some of the issues with the way we test in, in frequency statistics, the whole null hypothesis significance test paradigm, uh, is fraught with some pitfalls, especially the fact that you're not explicitly 
specifying your alternative hypothesis. We only specify the null and we either reject or fail to reject that. I think that's a, a big flaw in that particular approach to, to doing statistics. Having said so, um, there are certainly also things that can go wrong with Bayesian statistics. So I think my opinion is that it's much more important that you understand what you're doing, regardless of which of the two you use, than to just blindly use Bayesian statistics and then nothing can go wrong. Which I think is slightly different from how Rich would put it. He, uh, he would treat it as gospel, I think. So, but, I mean, different people have different reasons for liking Bayesian statistics. For me, this is the most important one. When you're doing a replication, it's very important to be able to distinguish between evidence in favor of there not being anything versus just not enough evidence in general. Like, yeah. We don't know yet. And, yeah, for that you really need Bayesian statistics. But would you generally welcome Bayesian statistics being more present in the statistical courses? Yes, for sure. Yeah, I've, I've already introduced it um, in the first year course, but that's that was on a very conceptual level. Um, I also did this year the third year course with a very long name, uh, Statistical Solutions to Unusual oh. Problems in Psychology. Yeah. I did two lectures, and the first one was a theoretical one on some of the pitfalls on frequent statistics and possible advantages of Bayesian statistics. And then the second one, um, I, uh, I showcased JASP, actually, the, the new Bayesian SPSS. And I say Bayesian, but it's both Bayesian and frequentist. Um, I do have a very strong opinion on SPSS. I think it sucks. Um, anyway, so uh, the second lecture, um, I had students use a, uh, a data set and uh, analyze with both frequentist and Bayesian statistics and comment on the differences and write a conclusion section as you would in a paper. Um, and that is the kind of stuff I would like to continue to do and just slowly try to reform things. Also, next year, probably together with Rink Hoekstra, this is uh, fresh off the needle, what I'm telling you guys, but I'm going to start a research master course that's called Transparency in Science, in which I'm... Uh, going to talk about all of this stuff. Uh, it's time to talk about Magic the Gathering, and uh, we heard that you're pretty famous in the scene. Tell us everything. So you're um, a happy decent player, yeah. from what we've heard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think in my uh, when, I, when I was a student, I started playing this game, and I was uh, very quickly grabbed by how strategic magic is and how steep the learning curve is. It's a very difficult game to master and uh, not unlike chess. Actually, uh, one of the uh, top five chess players in the Netherlands, he's called Dimitri Reinderman, is also uh, uh, one of the, of the better magic players, so I, I know him through that scene quite well. And uh, I've played chess with him once. He demolished me, obviously. <laughs> but, uh, um, yeah... It's um, And that, that's something I find very interesting. I should add to this that I haven't found a game yet that I don't like. I like every single game there is. But in particular, I like a lot of card games because of uh, that's the link with statistics, I guess. I like the, the probabilistic nature of certain things, trying to calculate your outs, as in the proportion of cards in the deck that can save you and, and, and tailor the decisions you make to that. Um, that's, that's, for me, a very interesting part and probably one of the reasons I turned out to be fairly good at the game it has an equivalent of, of the Grand Slam in tennis in Magic World you have four Pro Tours a year and uh, the Pro Tour is a level where or is a tournament where 300 odd players compete in and um, 
the the company that made the game called Wizards of the Coast, they organized these tournaments as a big marketing tool as these things go, right? And when I moved to Australia, I um, all of a sudden I, I got my first breakthrough, I guess. So I, I qualified for uh, for my first pro tour, and then I uh, randomly found myself in a yeah in, in a featured match. So I immediately hit some camera time. I think part of that is also that they're trying to to scout for like uh, the the viewers favorites and that sort of thing and like interesting stories that would do well on the camera and they found it very interesting that someone that's has an academic career in statistics is is doing this particular game so they sort of singled me out I think and uh, I, I was interviewed in one of these first things uh, it's quite funny actually to, to see it back and then later I played a feature match on camera against one of the best players in the world and uh, well he beat me Mm-hmm. But, uh, I think I think the link to that is on my website, and then uh, yeah, I, um, I qualified a bunch more times, and it sort of snowballed from there. And, and now I am at least, if I may be so immodest, in Australia there is no magic player that doesn't know who I am. I don't think um, in the Netherlands there's a bit of that going on as well. When uh, when I arrived in Groningen, I, I found out where you can play here. And uh, when I introduce myself on the forum, a lot of people are like, oh, that's so cool, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. But, uh, uh, yeah, it uh, it sort of got away from me, I think, and it's still a hobby. But uh, it is true that, uh, to, to, to give you a sense of, of, of how much of a hobby it is, last year I there's sort of like a world ranking list, and I at the end of the year I was 57th. If you do something and you really want to compete at that level, it takes a lot of time. Um, and especially that year, I must have spent three hours a day on it, at least. That's just hard to match. I mean, you can partly do it, right? So in my lunch break, I would just watch strategy videos and that sort of thing. And then when I was at home, I'd do a bit more. But, but sometimes there were like moments when I had to prepare for a serious tournament and I just worked a little bit less. But if you could, would you be like a professional Magic the Gathering player? If that would be an option. And, and seize my academic career altogether? Okay. No, okay. definitely not, no. Because um, for multiple reasons, um, for multiple reasons. I think the one is that I know it's not sustainable. I mean, maybe I could do that for a few years and make a living out of it, but then what? I mean, then 10 years later, I'm definitely going to be outsmarted by the new 18-year-old kid on the block. And I mean, that's just the reality of it, right? You can't do things like that for too long. Two is, I really like uh, academia. Um, I'd be lying if I said that wasn't true. Um, I probably like teaching more than most. Um, you hear a lot of academics say, like, yeah, teaching is kind of that what we have to do to get to the research part, which is really cool. But I really like teaching. Um, it's maybe not strategic, but it's nice. And then the third thing. So in my student days, I also played, um, played poker to... Um, well, to have a bit of uh, money on the side. And I distinctly remember how much I got affected by a streak of ba- bad luck, as in mood-wise. If I play a pot for 1,500 euros and I'd lose it, even though I was ahead, I would be sick for weeks. And also because 1,500 euros is a lot of money, especially as a student, uh, but it's still a fair bit of money. And I don't think I could depend on that kind of swinginess for my living I mean if it's for 
some extra pocket money or a lot of extra pocket money that's one thing but if your whole living livelihood depends on it it's too unreliable yeah i couldn't do that don thank you for talking to us it was a pleasure it was uh, it was fun i'm curious uh, <laughs> to see what's going to come this podcast was a production of mindwise for the department of psychology at the university of Groningen. 